Okay, well, it's my honour to uh, get to introduce our speaker tonight. Um, I don't know if anyone's heard of him. He's a man named Mike Betts. Anyone heard of Mike? We are incredibly blessed uh, to have Mike leading and fathering us as churches. I've just been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians, and in there, Paul writes, actually he's in 2 Corinthians, he writes to the Corinthians and he says, make room in your heart for us. And I really want to encourage us this evening to make room in our hearts for what Mike is going to bring to us that God has put onto his heart for us as we move forward. We genuinely believe this conference is a defining moment for us as we step into a new season. So can we honour Mike and welcome Mike as he comes to speak to us this evening? Thank you very much. Great, thank you, Martin. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Great, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really good to be here, isn't it? And uh, I genuinely am believing that the Lord is going to meet with us in these few days together. I'm going to get straight into the Word of God and um, then much of what I, well, all of what I want to say comes out of that, but um, <laughs> rather than any preamble, I just want to get straight into it and then we'll, um, we'll make some comments as we go through. So if you'd like to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, very familiar story of David and Goliath, which you will have noticed on a lot of the publicity that we were using for the Courage Conference. It's just as a, an image that uh, meant something to us as we were preparing the conference, trying to think of examples of, of uh, biblical courage. So I want to, to talk uh, this evening about living a biblically courageous life, part one. Uh, the part two will be the last session Saturday, morning, uh, Saturday afternoon, which I'm also doing. But I want to look at living a biblically courageous life life. Because when we use the word courage, it can mean lots of different things. It, it, um, it, it conjures up lots of thoughts. So I want to try and look at a, an example in Scripture to see, well, what are some of the features of the life of someone who genuinely was living a biblically courageous life? And we can see that in David, really all through his life. But this particular account, I think, really helps us. So starting at verse 20, David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there was a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, 
I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For he's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Well, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of bronze on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he'd not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't go with these. I've not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch and his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone uh, sunk into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of of David. Father, I pray that as we look at this very instructive passage tonight, as we're here desiring to be men and women who genuinely live a biblically courageous life, will you feed us from your word? We don't have any other strategy, Lord. We don't have any other wisdom. Your word is wisdom. Your word is a light to our path. Your word makes us wise to salvation. Your word gives us the strength we need to do all the things that you have in mind for us to do. So I pray, Holy Spirit, through this room, fall upon us with great anointing in the word. Let the word spark in our hearts by the spirit and let there be empowerment tonight that we may genuinely from this place be changed like David was changed, be moved like David was moved, do things like David did, knowing that we follow in the same train that David followed in with the same God that David followed. Nothing's changed apart from a bit of history. So we pray, Holy Spirit, do something among us tonight that man's wisdom can't do. Lord, I just, I give you what I, little I have, my gift that you've given me. I give it back to you and say, Lord, whatever you can do with this, do it. Multiply it, feed, Lord, because it's your glory we're after. Not the applause of man for a good sermon. We don't want that, Lord. We want your power. We want your power, Lord, to be changing us and making us instruments that do battle in the name of Jesus for his glory. So let your fire fall, Lord, all across this room, all across the live stream as people are listening. We pray, let there be business done on earth from heaven tonight. We're asking you, Lord, to come and not disappoint because you never do. We pray you'd help us, Lord. Help me to know which bits to concentrate on, which bits to leave. Just help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I'm just going to go through a few things from this that particularly leapt out at me when I was praying, preparing, and thinking about it. First thing is this, living a biblically courageous life. Courage requires 
change. Courage requires change. It requires mobilization. It requires risk. It requires stepping out of one thing and stepping into a new thing. There is no advance in the kingdom of God without change. It is not possible. We find this illustrated in verse 20, right at the beginning of the story. Very simple. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper, took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. Simple beginnings can change the destinies of nations. David did a simple thing. He did what his father asked him to do. Many years later, our great David, Jesus, simply did what his father asked him to do. And all of history was changed. In our generation, as men and women who have the same God as our father, same principle applies. If we simply do what our father asks us to do, enormous change is possible. We're following in the same biblical line. We've got a, there's a track record we can rely on here. But courage requires change. You're sitting in change. We're in a different building. We're in a different city. Everything feels slightly unfamiliar. You've probably been wandering around London looking lost for hours. Good. Because courage is birthed in a seedbed of vulnerability and change. Change is required for us to step into something that we wouldn't have stepped into otherwise. David had to simply leave where he was and he didn't even know what was going to happen. He didn't know what God had got planned. He simply did the next thing that his father asked him. Jesus did know what he'd come for, but he had to still outwork it and learn obedience, however that works. He had to learn, well, Father, what do I do now? What do you want me to do? He had to wrestle in Gethsemane. He had to disciple people. He had to, he had to know the times, the seasons, the, the, the rhythms of what God wanted him to do. He had to learn. We have to do the same. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to change geographical location. It's more about changing what we do and our perspective and, and, and things that, that, that surround familiarity. I genuinely feel with all of my heart, and uh, it's quite uh, it means a lot to me standing here tonight because I, I'm, I'm certain God said to me we had to move out of East Anglia and come into London. I'm certain he said it. And I think the reason he said it is not that there's anything wrong with East Anglia. That's our heartland. That's, David had his heartland. But there comes a time when for you to grow into all the things that God wants you to do, God has to put you in a different environment so you can become a bigger people. It's not that there's anything wrong with where you come from, but sometimes you have to move into something for God to do something. And I believe that physically sitting in a different place with all the unfamiliarity that this represents is good for us because God is in it to make us bigger people for him. Can I have an amen? Yeah. You're all nervous now thinking, oh man, what do we sign up for this? See, God moves in and around us when we take steps into unfamiliar things. Stepping out in obedience feels unfamiliar. David was a small boy in a small field, and now and suddenly in verse 21 it says, uh, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. That's a bit different from a few sheep. And you might think, I don't know where you've come from today, but you might have come from a a small place or a different place, that this is one of the biggest, most happening cities on the planet. It's, it is. Praise God for London. I love London. I love it. It's, it's, it's an incredible place. But it's very different from where I live. And I love where I live. You know, I love where I live. David was from somewhere, and then suddenly he's before two huge armies. That is, that is different. Oh, the iPad's gone off. <laughs> there we are, it's on again. Don't do that to me. I tell you, 
My iPad broke 10 minutes before this meeting started. It's never done that ever, just dead. So I've now got people bringing me iPads from all over the place trying to get my notes back. So they keep going dark on me at the moment, but we'll, we'll manage. <laughs> um, so talk about feeling vulnerable. That was case in point. Um, I came across this quote about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, and it says this about him in, in a book about him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, was a German theologian, lived at the time of the Second World War, uh, in the Nazi sort of emergence. And it said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived a messy faith, believing Jesus continually brings us to choices that require total dependence upon him in order to take the next step. This means we stop being afraid of making mistakes. Trusting that if we misstep, God will sweep in with his grace, is faithful to forgive, and works things out to get us back on track. Because he wants us to move forward in the journey. Bonhoeffer teaches that a life of such extraordinary risk is the expectation, not the exception, for any disciple of Jesus. Many of us are afraid of getting things wrong. That is an evil stronghold. It is not from heaven, it's from the pit. Because it uses a rule of law, not a, not a, a, a fountain of grace. And if we're afraid that we might get things wrong, we will never take steps into what God wants us to do. We will always be assessing, you know, some of us are more early adopters and we kind of, yeah, I'm up for it. We go in without thinking. Well, you've got an advantage when it comes to this subject (laughs) to some degree. The disadvantage is God might not be in it. But, as I've just said, if we make a misstep, a misstep, God sweeps in with his grace. Give him plenty of things to put right, is my argument. <laughs> if, you're, if we're constantly thinking, I've got to get this right, I've got to get this right, I, I strongly suspect at the end of our lives, we will just about be ready for what might have been. Isn't that, wouldn't that be tragic? Courage will look different for everyone. We all have our own Jerichos and Goliaths. And we'll, uh, courage is a thin place between utter failure and significant breakthrough. It's like a tightrope. Courage is that kind of, you know, this, it, and it's not just for pioneers. Courage is not just for those who, you know, charge off over the prairies, making communities where there weren't any. The church planted, it, it's for them. But you can also have to be incredibly courageous to stay in your town, your village, your city and say, we're going to build cities and skyscrapers for the glory of God here in this place. We're going to create something that wasn't here before to redeem our community for the king. That's just as courageous. It's not just about go, go, go. It can be about build, build, build. So it's not caricature courage. I felt that the Lord showed me this picture for us, uh, and it was of a jigsaw. Uh, and he was just, it's seven years now, roughly, since the transition of New Frontiers into now multiple apostolic families of churches. And I felt the Lord showed me this jigsaw, it was almost like the seven years were coming to an end, and he was just putting the last piece in. And the last piece was us being here, but it was also the first piece of the next jigsaw. And I sort of, it sort of blurred, and I saw him move one jigsaw to the side, and it was complete. He completed it. And then I saw him put this one piece in, and then he tipped the box of all these other pieces on the table and started rummaging through them. And over the next season, he's going to start putting different bits of the jigsaw in place for the next season. And each of us is a piece of that jigsaw, and each of our churches is a piece of that jigsaw. Each of the nations God will put into our field is part of that jigsaw. And when that jigsaw comes, however that phase is, is, whenever that phase comes to an end or to a completion, I believe what will be written, the, the picture that will be written across that jigsaw is courage. 
I think we're moving into a season. This is, I believe this conference is not just a hit and run. It is, I hope, the beginning of a stirring of an atmosphere that we will need to carry with us from this place into the years ahead. It should become a DNA. We have to create and let God create amongst us atmosphere before momentum starts to happen. Otherwise, we live in good intentions that are never followed through. God has to change our hearts before he changes our, our, our kind of what we've done, as it were. Something's got to happen in us, yeah? Before God can outwork something from us. And I believe that's what God is beginning to do. He's stirring us. Jackie Pullinger said, when you've tasted purpose, you'll never be satisfied with existence. And I think God wants to just salt our lips with some purpose. All those nations we saw. I mean, come on, Lord. We think about the UK. This nation needs a move of God. Huge. This, is, this nation is desperate without God. We need courageous people who will say, Lord, here we are. So courage requires change. Next, courage means accepting God's view of you. Verse 28, David starts to step up and Eliab says, why have you come down? This derisory thing, with whom have you left those few sheep? One of the enemy's biggest weapons against us is intimidation. He will... See, before Goliath, before David met Goliath, there was already a war going on in David's head. Because his brother had said, basically, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You've got the entire nation here with the choicest soldiers battle-skilled, battle-hardened warriors, and you've got a few sheep. Who do you think you are? I tell you, most of spiritual warfare goes on between your two ears. Does it not? Because if the devil can take us out in the way we think, he's won before we've even got on the battlefield. And so, imagine if David had listened to that and said, yeah, you're right, I'll go home. That would have been a very different ending to the story, wouldn't it? Imagine if you and I hear those prophetic promises and whispers of God in our hearts and we get all kind of, yes, I, 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 there is something I can do for the kingdom of God. And then the, the little voice of the enemy comes in, who do you think you are? I tell you, that's the first time, that's the first place courage is required, is it not? To say, no, I am not listening to that. God has put his hand on me and he's chosen me for purpose. And he's going to fulfill his purpose. The enemy shouts at us. Alan Scott said, every work of God will be resisted and contested. The enemy comes every time you or I attempt something great for God. Every time. Seek to live on a new level or give yourself to something greater. He hopes that his tactic of intimidation will keep you from a lifestyle of expansion. I'm going to read that again. Every work of God will be resisted and contested. The enemy comes every time you attempt something great for God. Seek to live on a new level or give yourself to something greater. He hopes that his tactic of intimidation will keep you from a lifestyle of expansion. One of the first things you or I need to do, even on this first night, is say no to the lies. Because there's no point uh, us making appeals for church planting or for fresh waves of leadership or correct if we're listening to an old track that says, you're rubbish. That doesn't come from heaven. It's not the melody of heaven, is it? It's from the pit. David, and so what does it say David did? He turned away and talked to someone else. <laughs> Good move. Most of us, 
would do far better instead of living, listening to the fanatic in the attic, listening to the fella in the cellar. <laughs> Most of us would do far better. That's right. That's right, Edward, isn't it? Yeah. Most pastoral work is about getting people to stop listening to him and start listening to him. Most, it's what most of the Christian life is about. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. Believing the truth, acting in the truth. The devil never comes to us with something that's not believable. He's not, he's not daft. He's very clever. He will sell us something that's kind of believable. So we think, oh yeah, you've got a point. Yes, he has got a point, but he's still wrong. <laughs> Next thing, courage is lived, not just spoken. There's too many words, says he preaching. Too many words. Words everywhere. David in verse 32 said, let no man's heart fail because of this man. There's something in him that says, I'm going to live this. I'm going to live this. Your servant will go and fight. He didn't just say, oh, this, don't let uh, any man's heart fail because of this Philistine and then walk off. <laughs> we can all be full of great, uh, courageous statements. But he said, no, I'm going to go and fight. I discovered recently, I was, I've been reading through Matthew's Gospel, and it just struck me as I was reading this commentary, I, a fact I hadn't noticed before, and I felt kind of ashamed I hadn't noticed it before. But the fact was this, Joseph, as in Mary, the mother of Jesus' husband, there is no words that he ever spoke recorded in the Bible. Nothing. Nothing Joseph ever said is written down in Scripture. And yet that man, by his godly choices, preserved, nurtured, protected, and listened to God in such a way that the Savior of the world was stewarded in his childhood so that we are all here tonight. Without a word. Don't tell me the power is in the words. The power is in the living. The power is in the living. Many of the greatest heroes of the faith I know, you don't know. Why? Because they haven't been given gifts of oratory, which is only one gift. Necessary, but only one. They have been given gifts that enable them to live the Christian life and make an impact by what they've done not just by what they've said. I tell you, it takes courage to live it, not just say it, doesn't it? It's a, it's a whole lifestyle where you have to go and go and go again. So what, do, what does biblical look like? A biblical courage look like? Well, it will look different for, it will look different in many, many different situations. It can be the resilience to just keep going through all seasons of life. William Carey said, you know, if you want to give me a title, say, I know how to plod. He I know how to plod. He just kept going. Doesn't matter. You, whatever you throw at me, you're not going to stop me. I'm relentless. I'm like a machine. Whatever you throw at me, I just plod. I just plod. I'll keep going. I'll keep going. I tell you, people like that win. Don't they? It doesn't look very glamorous. Let's interview this plodder. Yeah. Or a book. How to plod. We, we want instant, quick, tell us the secret. Is a conference, is a book, is a... Listen to this, there's a new thing coming in, it'll change your church. No, it won't. It won't. Whatever it is, it won't. What will change our churches are plodders filled with the Holy Spirit who love the Word of God. People who say... you. Whatever you do to me, I'm keeping going. Yeah? Through a lifetime. Through ups and downs. Through resilience. One of my favorite books is The Resilient Life. Gordon MacDonald. Just say, no, I'm just going to... I learn how to navigate every season of life, every difficulty. I'm learning to navigate it because you're not going to stop me. That's what courage is. 
encourages a friend of mine who's got going through cancer treatment at the moment, and when she was in the ward having cancer treatment recently, she saw someone sitting in a bed opposite her, and she's got all her own issues she's dealing with, she goes over and prays with that person. That's courage. That's biblical courage. Biblical courage is, well, do you know what? My well is a bit empty at the moment, but do you know what? I'm just going to decide, I'm just going to go and fill someone else's. I don't feel very great at the moment. I'm just going to bless someone. That's courage, isn't it? Living counterculturally. Courage is being obedient to the Bible, swimming against the tide of popular culture, accepting the high personal cost of criticism, unkind things being said and done. Who asked you? Who do you think you are? You know, we often say in this nation that we are blessed that we can still preach and everything and, and, and without um, fear of, of perse- uh, you know, imprisonment or persecution. And I, I agree, wonderful freedoms we have. But we're still fighting against the same demons. They're just manifesting themselves in different ways. The battle is still as intense. It's just manifested in different ways. So we've got to understand it takes... Courage to live in a, in a nation that's closed to the gospel. It takes courage to live in a so-called liberal nation where anything goes, except, of course, if you happen to be a Christian. Yeah? It takes courage to uproot and move town. It takes courage to stay and sow your life into one church for the rest of your life. Doing the day-by-day nitty-gritty of seeing people, getting people on your alpha courses, getting them baptized, helping them live courageously for Jesus and maturely. I tell you, giving your life to that, nurturing a family, that's courage required. Especially if you've got friends who are jetting off all around the world to the various hotspots of glory that are descending, where glory bombs are falling everywhere. And they say, well, what have you been doing for the last year? I said, well, I've just been building the local church. It's doesn't sound very much fun, does it? Takes courage. Takes courage not to be popular sometimes. To say no. No. That's not biblical. Whatever happens to me, no. I tell you this, over coming years, more of us will have to do that and say no. That will carry a cost. It may not be imprisonment, but it will be social exclusion, derision, mocking. I'm not trying to just create a, you know, we can see it coming because we're swimming against the tide. Andy McCulloch, in his excellent book, Global Humility, says, Serious missionaries from the last few centuries have well understood that reaching the unreached is a slow, lifelong commitment. That's a brilliant quote. I don't often quote from a US president, but I will at the moment. And Theodore Roosevelt said this, and I think... (laughs) (laughs) He said, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. 
<laughs> Shorthand, give it a go. Give it a go. Who knows what God might do? A few more points. Next, courage is developed in obscurity. Verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them. David learned in the hidden place. I, I believe that leadership is best when it emerges rather than arrives. It's a difference. See, leadership has to be formed and shaped and nurtured in obscurity, in the hidden place. David sang worship songs for an audience of one before now the Psalms are known globally. He didn't do it waiting for the deal to come through and a label to sign him. He just sang to God. And there was only the sheep hearing and they weren't too sure. <laughs> See, never despise the days of obscurity. Do you feel, uh, particularly... I want to say that to those in the scent generation amongst us. One of the reasons we wanted to bring leadership and scent together is because I am thinking we need a 10 to 15 year run together so that we can develop you, maybe in obscurity for a while, so that you are fully shaped, formed and developed as leaders when in your day you'll take it further than any of us who are currently leading will be able to. See, that's why you're here. But that cannot be fast-tracked. Maturity is never fast-tracked. It, 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 it has to be learned in the, in the hidden place. That's where David learned how to be a king before he'd even dreamt of it. So never despise the battles in small hidden places because the principles don't change even if the size of the battle does. What you learn in the hidden place bring into the public arena. But if you're thrown into the public arena without a history of battles in this hidden place, you won't make it. You won't make it. Because when you're doing it for an audience of one, you learn that that's actually all you're doing it for. So whatever, success is not something to be desired. Let me tell you that. You might think, oh yeah, I want to make Jesus famous and yeah, well, okay, I'll be well known at the same time because I can't help it. You don't want to be successful. It is a plague. When Je whenever Jesus was, they would try to take him and make him king by force or uh, bring him uh, into the public arena, he, he, he withdrew because he knew his time had not come. He knew that was not the way. He didn't entrust himself to those who wanted to kind of get a shortcut through to Jesus restoring the kingdom then to Israel. He said, no, no, I'm off. He walked off. Why? Because he knew there was something hidden going on that would have its day, but he didn't want to short-circuit what God was doing. Obscurity is not a punishment. It is one of the first proofs of the fatherhood of God over your life. You might be carrying very big promises and sometimes there's an agony in your heart thinking, perhaps I dreamt all this up. Sometimes you can think, I wish, I, I wish God had never spoken to me because I can't see it's ever going to happen, but it's kind of eating me up and I, I wish it would just go away. That's God nurturing your heart. And it may be years before the day of profile comes. But never despise the days of obscurity. Yeah, but the need is so urgent. Yeah, it's so urgent and it's so big, we can't take shortcuts. That's why the sent generation are here and we're preparing you for 10 to 15 years' time. That doesn't mean you won't do anything before then. But I want you to understand there is a process to developing good leadership. 
It's a pro- you have to father people. When you raise children, you, you can't just you know, do it in weeks. It's years. It doesn't ever end, does it? It just changes. It just changes, doesn't it? Because different seasons have different things that we... And the Bible has a very important principle. It says, parents don't save for their children. No, sorry. Children don't... I thought I got that wrong. Children... (laughs) It's getting late. Children don't save for their parents, but parents for their children. There's a principle. Parents are always giving. You know that. Parents, and they always should give, is biblical. Because a parent never stops being a parent. Our father never stops being our father. So whatever, even fathers need fathers. Yeah? Because there's something about how parenting works, that you're nurturing, 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 all the time. You still with me? Yes. Okay. Now, we're not fighting people in the way David was fighting a Philistine. We don't fight people. We don't hate people. We're not against people. Even people who say evil things and say things that are anti-Christian and even things we don't, people who say things we don't agree with. We don't hate the people. They're sheep without a shepherd. They don't know. They're just as lost as we were. We don't, we don't come against people. We love people. Yeah? You'd wonder that sometimes when you hear what some Christians say about people. <laughs> Yours in Christ. What's all that about? Honestly, some Christians are so vitriolic. Where's where's that? Yeah, well, I'm speaking the truth. Not in the right way. You're coming over very irritating. It's not a gift of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. God... God's called me to be a prophet. Well, if that's what you think a prophet is, no, he hasn't. He's called you to grow up and show grace to people, just like Jesus showed grace to you and me, the unloving and the unlovely. We are not against people, ever. We are against the things that come against people. We are against the spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. We are against demons. We are against principalities. We are against every lie from the pit of hell which ensnares men and women's hearts and has blinded their eyes so they cannot see the truth, who has locked them up to eternal uh, separation and eternal uh, hell, whatever kind of images that conjures up, whatever awful realities that we find it even hard to describe. That reality is, is, is upon people because the enemy has lied and blinded and, 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 and marred what God has done. That's what we're against. God loves the people. God so loved the world. Loved the world. Loved the world. Even the worst bits of it. He loved it. We, if we are to be his ambassadors, we must allow the Holy Spirit to change the way we feel about people who even do evil things. Because we're not against people. We love people. That should be one of the most powerful things about the gospel. People are expecting a fight and we just love them. They think, what? Yeah, I don't agree with you, but, you know, I'm not going to get angry with you. It just disarms people. That's why sinners and all the people that no one else wanted to be with, they hung out with Jesus. Because he loved people. A couple more quick things. Courage engages the enemy. Verse 49, David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it. I find that God blesses action, not intention. Even if the action is premature, immature, needs a bit of work, I find God really likes it when people just have a go. One of the most important things any leader can do is just give 
all the people that you are responsible for, give them things to do. You know, just get people moving. Moving. Movement creates appetite, creates dependency, because people have to find fresh grace. David didn't stand there just talking about it. He put his hand in his bag, took a stone, got on with it. He got on with it. What I'd really love from this conference is that it's not a conference with no outcome, but it's a conference that changes an atmosphere that leads to momentum. That it wouldn't just be a, oh yeah, didn't we talk about courage once? No, we became known as a people who were just courageous people. Wouldn't that be amazing? There's something about the DNA that God puts in us over the coming years that we think, when people just touch up against us, they think, they're, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not uh, naturally gifted or naturally strong or naturally you know, capable, but man alive, you just touch their spirit. There's, some, there's a lion in there somewhere. I love that song, We Can Be As Bold As A Lion Because You Send A Lamb. I love that because it just sums up what it's all about. Last point. Courage fights with God's weaponry. Verse 50, the last verse we read. There was no sword in the hand of David. The things you would expect him to fight with, he didn't touch. People think the church should fight with this or fight with that or be this kind of voice, be that kind. Shall I tell you, this, these are, the, power, these are the, the weapons we have. The power of a godly life, the wisdom of godly counsel, the power of prayer, the authority of scripture, and a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those are our weapons. That's the, that, that's the stone in the sling. There's no sword in the hand of David. Now those things are simple things. When I was first a Christian with this, I'll bring it into land, <clears throat> which is a kind of a hint for the band to kind of get ready, just not just yet, but pre, pre-warning. Um, when I was first a Christian, I was, uh, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit one, one evening at home. I had no idea what had happened to me. Um, I was brought up in a brethren background, um, which those of you from the UK know that brethren background is very strong on the word, but they don't believe in gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as, you say, as they say, uh, you can always tell a brethren person, but you can't tell them very much. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> they, know, they know their Bibles. Um, but one night, I just went home I think I'd been out, and I just knelt by the side of my bed. And I'd been a Christian probably a couple of years. I knelt by the side of my bed. I just felt God wanted me to. And I, I, I just lifted my hands, and it was like the room... This doesn't happen every time I pray. Oh, that it did. But on this night, it just felt like the room was filled with white electricity. It's the only thing... I, I don't know how, even how to describe it. I didn't speak in tongues or manifest any gifts or anything. Because I, did, I didn't even know there were such things. Um, but I knew the fatherhood of God in an extra I just knew it and from that day to this I've never ever felt anything other than the very very close intimacy of God as my father even though my natural father died when I was nine so I had not known what it is to have a father God met with me when I was about I think it was about 19 he met with me and I, I it changed my heart I went back to a friend of mine, I said what had happened, and fortunately she wasn't from the Brethren, she was from Pentecostal background, and she said, ah, well I can tell you what's happened to you. <laughs> and so she did, and she lent me a book explaining about the gifts of the Spirit. So I went hurriedly back to my room, and I knelt down by the side of my bed, and I said, Lord, it says here, eagerly desire the gift of, gifts of the Spirit, eagerly desire speaking in tongues. Paul said he did it more than everyone else, I want to join him. <laughs> so I said, Lord, your word, I believe... So I'm now going to open my mouth and speak and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you because you've made a promise. If you ask for bread, I'm not going to give you a snake. Right? So I'm going to speak in a language I've never learned, I've never been taught, and I'm going to do it now. And I opened my mouth and I just said the first thing that came out and it sounded weird. (laughs) And I said, Lord, this isn't about what I'm feeling. This is about something bigger than that. 
It's about something bigger than that. You've made promises. If we ask him for the Holy Spirit, he won't give us um, a forgery. And so I started speaking in tongues and then other gifts of the Spirit came. And because I had a, at that stage, I had a real deep love for the Word of God. I still do. But um, I was, <laughs> needed to phrase that slightly differently. Uh, I can remember after that, that encounter, I, I used to get up. I remember it as clear as anything. It was in the summer. Uh, it was in the summer. And, and the, the light mornings used to come up at five o'clock, half past four, five o'clock. As soon as it was light, I was up. And I was just, I just read the Bible. And I prayed in tongues. And I just read promise after promise after promise after promise. And I just soaked myself in scripture. I soaked myself in it. I learned how to enjoy his presence. I learned how to see what his attributes were, what his character was, his nature, the things he'd promised. And so I'd be filled with the spirit. I'd meditate on the word of God. I was filled with the spirit. I'd meditate on the word of God. I tell you, those weapons, those simple routines, I have never changed to this day. Because it doesn't need to be a sword in our hand. We don't fight with weapons like that. That simple belief in the authority of Scripture and the manifest presence of the Spirit is actually all we need, isn't it? We don't need to make it more complicated. We just need to say, Lord, fill me, teach me, keep feeding me as I give myself again and again to reading your word, meditating, being filled with the Spirit, meditating on Scripture, chewing it over. Simple battle strategies and I want to invite us tonight just as we conclude that we would simply in our first step tonight to just come back to the basics David was called because he just did the basics very well he loved the word of God he was obedient to what God told him and he was a man filled with the spirit we just need to be people like that don't we God can do all sorts of things with people who are just willing to be like that. So let's stand together if the band would like to come back.